Good morning again, and, uh, and welcome. It is really good to gather with you. We do have a very full and blessed morning this morning, and so I would just like to get right into it. Will you please take your Bibles and meet me in Genesis chapter 3? Of course, if you don't have a Bible and you're Maybe visiting with us this morning, there are some provided for you in the seat back in front of you, and uh, we'll turn to Genesis chapter 3. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. It's that time of the year when we remember the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to earth, and we celebrate His birth. And this year for Advent, we're doing a short series of sermons that not only tell the story of Christ's birth, but what led to it and will eventually come from it. We've titled the series, We Believe, because we do. We believe that God is still telling His story. A story being written in our world, even today, and even upon the pages of our individual lives. And the Bible tells this story uh, basically in four main parts. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, or what is sometimes referred to as new creation. Last week, Andre began with creation as recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. And the recurring theme in these opening chapters is the incomparable power and goodness of God. With each day of creation, we see Almighty God creating something from nothing. And then stopping after each day to admire His handiwork. So that by the time we come to the end of chapter 1, we read these blessed words, chapter 1, verse 31, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very, very good. God created to bless. He created to bless, to do good for His creatures, and for all things to find their rest and purpose in Him, Creation, therefore, is an important reference point for our lives. It's a handle on which to grasp and be reminded of God's good work in our lives. Man and woman were created last, as you may know, essentially the culmination of God's creative work. God saved the best for last and that we were created uniquely with authority over other living creatures while all things lived under God's supreme authority. We were made in the very image of God, something more like Him than anything else. When He set out to create something more like Him, than anything else, He created us. Now imagine, how might your perspective on life change today? Were you to remember that when God created, 
He created you with privilege and blessing because you bear his image in very unique and powerful and wonderful ways. Created by God in God's image to image him, which is the most meaningful and satisfying purpose imaginable. And yet, by the time we get to Genesis 3, things have taken a tragic turn. We learn that we have turned from God, from God's goodness, to instead go our own way. We've fallen from the glorious purpose and its fatal effects are still felt and evident in our world everywhere. And yet as great as our fall was and is, God is greater still. And so this morning I want us to consider basically two things. Our fall from glory and God's glorious grace. And so let's read. Will you turn with me to Genesis 3? And I want to read the whole of the chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I Hid myself, And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God then said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. The word there is against your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, if ever, if ever there was a pivotal turning point, this is it. In that everything that happened before this account in Genesis 3 was perfect and good and right and true. Creation was just as you intended it to be. Where man and woman lived in unbroken fellowship with their maker, perfect peace with one another, and creation itself Rejoiced in the goodness of God. Until sin entered the world through the disobedience of this first pair. And everything that follows Genesis 3, everything is your gracious response to this tragic event. Everything in the Old Testament, every event, every prophecy, every account, everything in the New Testament, everything in history from the time of the New Testament to the present day, everything, every single thing, is your gracious response 
to our disobedience and sin. For your glory, for your glory, and for our good good. And so, Father, this morning as we read these words and hear this account again, will you please impress your truth upon our lives? Will you please bring conviction upon us all where conviction is necessary? Will you please make sin to be bitter, that we would turn from it quickly? And will you please cause again in our lives to taste and see the sweetness of the goodness and grace of God? Do your eternal work in our midst, even in these moments. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So Genesis 3 opens with a conversation that appears to be already in progress. One between Eve and Satan who is in the form of a serpent. Adam is there also. And the topic of conversation seems to center around two things. The truth of God's command and the trustworthiness of God's character. God had placed Adam in Eden and provided for him every seed-yielding plant and tree. Numerous trees that were pleasant uh, to behold and from which to eat. Adam was blessed to call Eden his home, blessed to enjoy this garden paradise, blessed to work and keep it. All was available to him with just one exception, the tree of knowledge. You may eat of every tree in the garden, the Lord said to him in chapter 2, verse 16, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when God created Eve, Adam obviously relayed this to her so that both the man and the woman were very clear on what God provided and prohibited. Every tree is yours, Adam. Every one. It's all yours to enjoy as much as you'd like. Every plant and tree as far as you can see yours. Every one. Except one. And we have to ask, why not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why would God plant a tree from which they could not eat, especially one so delightful to the eyes, which bore such delightful truth. And, and why would God place this tree right in the middle of the garden where they were sure to see it often? I think it's because that one tree served as a necessary reminder to them that they were not God. 
made in the image of God? Yes. The pinnacle of God's creation? Yes. Greatly privileged by God? Yes. But never intended to be God or live independent from God by this one important restriction. I think God was maintaining the parameters of the creator-creature relationship, teaching them that the relationship between God and humanity is one whereby God is God and we are not. God gets to decide what's best and our communion with Him is best enjoyed when we may remain willfully and wonderfully dependent upon Him. And so when Satan appears in chapter 3, he attacks this issue specifically, the command and character of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And we notice here the twisting of truth, right? The complete untruth. God never said they couldn't eat of any tree. Just this one. And when Eve acknowledged that eating from the one tree would bring death, the devil replied, you will not surely die. No, 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 no. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. God is holding you back, Eve. We hear these whispers even today, right? He's holding you back. He's keeping you from enjoyment and further enlightenment. He's being selfish. He's lying to you. You will not die. No, eat, both of you. Both of you eat. And you will be like God. But they were as much like God as God intended them to be. Created by Him in His image for perfect relationship with Him and one another. And this was their great dignity and delight. God put Adam in the garden to work and keep it. And He walked alongside Adam there. They enjoyed time together. Can you imagine? Yesterday, Elias and I are out front hanging Christmas lights. We're just working together. We're spending time together. We're enjoying each other's company. And just as I explained to, to my son what I was doing and why and how he could share in it too, I just imagine... God teaching Adam how to work the garden and enjoy creation. Together they enjoyed each other. Eve also shared in this great work of creation. She and Adam were told and uh, to be they were told to be fruitful and and multiply but 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 Adam Adam could never conceive or carry a child. No, no that distinct honor was was reserved for Eve only, for the woman only. That, that honor of bringing new life into the world was for her. So God had created them both in His image, but, but each bore a different aspect of His image, even as we do today in our various gifts and callings. God loved them, cared for them, 
was generous with them, and yet the devil focused on the one thing that God prohibited rather than the thousand things that God provided. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, verse 6, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate. Satan deceived the woman while Adam stood nearby, complicit in the exchange. And when they ate the fruit of that tree, the one tree, the only tree, (coughs) off limits, the entire course of history changed forever. They had sinned against their maker. And as the descendants of the first man and woman, every man and woman since has done the same. And so what do we learn from this account about ourselves, about our sin and sin nature? First, that sin is the refusal to trust God. Fundamentally, sin is unbelief. It's failing to believe that God is good. And that all that He does is good. And that He intends our good. In those moments of temptation, when lured by the lies of the devil, Adam and Eve lost sight of the goodness of God. Sin blinds us and makes us cynical and skeptical. We assume that God is holding us back, keeping us from good things, when in fact He has blessed us beyond measure. I mean, just recently, did we not sit around Thanksgiving tables to acknowledge and celebrate the abundant goodness of the Lord? And second, we learn that sin is the breaking of relationship, not simply the breaking of rules. That's important. Because they failed to believe that God is good and intends their good. Because they failed to value their relationship with God in that way, it became easier for Adam and Eve to transgress the boundary that God had established. But had they stopped to to consider and remember the wonder of relationship with God and all that God had given them, things would have been much different. That's the problem. We don't stop. When we're faced with temptation, sometimes we just need to pause and like get our wits about us again. It's when we think of God as a rule maker only, a rule maker only who simply distributes arbitrary and impersonal lists of do's and don'ts. It's then when we miss the wonder of relationship with our maker who so wonderfully and and helpfully and necessarily informs what we do and don't. And therefore, thirdly, we learn that sin is a willful turning from God. A willful turning from God and His goodness. 
In sin, we cast aside God's interests in pursuit of our own. We refuse the hundreds of trees that He so generously provides for the one tree of our own choosing. We turn from the incredible privilege afforded us by God for the imagined benefit that we, can, that we earn on our own. We refuse the relational blessing to be enjoyed when living with God for some momentary pleasure that promises satisfaction but can never deliver on its promise. Right? Never. Not really. Adam and Eve had it all, blessing upon blessing, and more than that, they had God. And yet, believing a lie, they delighted in a piece of fruit rather than in Him who is the source of all delight. And we're just so often guilty of the same. Failing to grasp God's goodness, we grab at infinitely lesser things. The fruit may look different today. It may come in the form of money or material possessions or spouse or family or boyfriends or girlfriends or education and personal achievement at work or school. A whole host of other things. But this fact remains, you were not created for those things. But for God. Created in His image to enjoy and image Him. And to supremely glory in anything else is to eat the forbidden fruit and experience its deadly effects. And I want you to hear this. I think this maybe applies to us, even those of us in the church, more than anything else. I think this is really the thing that struck me again from this account, is sin is not always instead of God. I find that it's often... I would even say most often in addition to God. In other words, it's that we want God and other things too. I think that's Adam and Eve in this scene. They wanted God. And they wanted all that God provided. Plus, all that God prohibited. You know, idolatry comes in many forms. We typically think of it as in terms of worshiping something other than God, but it also involves worshiping something alongside God. I remember, uh, remember Israel and the golden calf? The people were waiting for Moses uh, to return with a word from the Lord. But when he took longer than they were expecting, they took matters into their own hands and their failure to trust God, to trust God's goodness, to trust God's timing. They constructed this idol of their own making, a golden calf. Why a golden calf? Because cows were worshipped in Egypt from which they had just been delivered. 
In other words, they lost sight of God and who God is and all that God had done for them in their deliverance. But what's really interesting here in that account is that they didn't replace the altar of God with the altar of the golden calf. Instead, they simply set the two side by side and worshiped them both. You see, failure to worship God doesn't mean that you cease to worship. It's just that you worship uh, something else. Created things that cannot satisfy the soul instead of the Creator who can and does. And if we're honest, if we're honest... If we're honest, we have all bowed before golden calves at one point or another. We're to worship God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we've all worshipped lesser things. We have. We have all eaten the forbidden fruit. And so here's what God wants to say to you and me. Here's what God wants to say to us this morning. Am I not enough? Am I not enough for you? Do you really need more? Do you want everything you want, but not me? Would that be better for you? Or do you want me only if you can have everything else too? Is that what you're after? Or will you trust me and be satisfied in me and know and know that I will give you everything I want for you, which I intend for your ultimate good. It wasn't that the forbidden fruit was better for food or more delightful to the eyes. That's not what attracted Adam and Eve most. It was simply that the tree offered something the others did not. Self-gain. So for the first time ever, ever, humanity pursued its own way at the expense of God's choosing self-glory over His. You know, later in chapter 5, we learn that Adam lived 930 years. But spiritually, Adam died in sin in that one terrible moment in Eden as his once perfect communion with God perished. As did Eve's. Lusting for this autonomy apart from God, they lost the place of, and privilege they were created to enjoy Because sin brings death, always. Death physical and spiritual, present 
and eternal, the death of relationship with God, the loss of life as God intended it to be, beginning with Adam and Eve and continuing to this very day, sin still manifests itself time and again, and its deadly consequence still applies. And so the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men Why? Because all sinned. Or Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was never intended to be this way. God God created uh, all things good and they were good. There was a time before sin. Can you imagine that? Picture a world where everything is as it was intended to be. Everything is as it should be. Where man and woman, humanity itself, lived in perfect peace with one another and more importantly with God. But we didn't appreciate what we had and frankly, most of us still don't. We turned from God and we fell from glory. And thus Genesis chapter 3, the fall is the most tragic event in the history of the human race. But thankfully, the story does not end in there. The story does not end there. There is hope, great hope. For God responds to Adam and Eve in their sin with grace. I want you to see that he was gracious in his judgment of them. He was gracious in his provision for them. And he was gracious in his promise to them. God was gracious in that he held them accountable and gave them consequences for their sin. That's grace. Because if there weren't consequences to sin, we'd never turn from it and return to the Lord. The uh, the consequences, notice, were, were commensurate with their callings. The pain of childbirth would be greatly multiplied for Eve while the ground that Adam worked would be much harder to work. But the ground would still bear fruit. That's grace. And Eve would still bear children. That's grace. Though she and Adam lost the paradise of uh, unhindered fellowship with God, God was gracious with them even in judgment. Listen, even by sending them out of the garden and guarding the tree of life, God was graciously protecting them from eating the fruit of that tree and living forever in their fallen state. And He provided for them. They attempted, we, we saw they attempt to cover themselves with leaves and loincloths. And it's just a perfect illustration of how we attempt to cover our guilt through self-effort. How many times, how often do we 
attempt to hide our shame and try in vain to make ourselves right and whole again. But listen, self-effort never brings us closer to God. It always pushes us further away. So graciously, God calls out to them. He confronts them and he covers their sin. It was God who clothed them and cared for them, as verse 21 attests. It was God who took uh, animal skins and made garments of grace for this guilty pair. It was God who provided for them in their sin. He didn't wait for them to fix themselves. He met them in their sin and provided for them. For the first time ever, a sacrifice for sin was made. One that pointed to another ultimate sacrifice. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Even in Eden, though Adam and Eve had turned from them, God did not give up on them. He was gracious in his judgment, gracious in his provision, gracious in his promise. From the fall itself, he promised a Savior who would come from the seed of the woman. And from that point forward, there would be a division between the woman's offspring and the serpent who was cursed by God. From that point forward, Satan sought to turn humanity against God, just as he did in the garden. Hence, from that point forward, please hear this, we see our need of saving. And yet even there, from the garden itself, in the darkness of sin and death, we also see the first light of salvation. And hear of the promised Savior. To the devil, God declared in verse 15, He, notice the personal pronouns, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God moves from talking about offspring in general to a specific person. And we know that he's talking about Jesus, about how Jesus would one day triumph over the devil and actually destroy the works of the devil. From the line of the woman, one would come, the promised Messiah sent by God to deal sin and Satan a crushing blow and make things right again. And from our vantage point, we know that he has, that God has sent forth his only son. That he is eternally one with God, yet was born a man. Andre is going to really unpack this next week, so I don't want to take too much. I want to read the story, and and I want to stick to my assigned chapter, if you will. But Jesus, this Jesus, this Savior, the Savior lived as one of us, yet entirely without sin, died for us as payment for sin, rose to new life, and thus defeated death, that we might live again with God in Him. And and it is this Jesus, this Christ, it's Him we celebrate each Christmas. 
and throughout the year. And so maybe, maybe, maybe like Adam and Eve, you're here today and you're hiding from God or trying to. And there's sin in your heart and you're trying to cover your own shame. Or you're in trying to cover your own shame. You're just, you're just engrossed in this, this deadly cycle of self-effort that, again, never really brings you closer to God. It only pushes you further away. And what you need to know, again, what you need to know, again, is that God is good. And he is gracious in his judgment. Even by providing another opportunity still today to turn from your sin and return to him. And you need to know that God is gracious in his provision. That he has provided for you not just for the world, he's provided for you, for you, a savior. Who willingly, freely took all of your disobedience, all of your filth, all of your sin, and he bore it in your place on the cross and he's gracious in his promise to you in that all who entrust themselves to Jesus every single person all who entrust themselves to Jesus will indeed be forgiven all their sins and restored to God forever And so as we prepare for communion this morning, I just want to urge each one of you to really reflect on these things. And as much as we're humanly possible, we never see it or know it all, but search your heart. Or better yet, ask the Lord to just shine his, his gracious spotlight upon the many recesses of your heart and come clean. Just confess again your need and your desire and your love and receive from your maker his all-sufficient grace. For as great as our fall was and is, God is always greater still. Amen. Father, thank you for these really these, these precious and really undeserved moments where you are so kind to reveal to us 
just how far we've fallen from glory, your glorious intent and purpose for our lives, and so kind to reveal to us just how gracious you are to bring us back. We thank you for Jesus. So as we partake in this time around his table together, Father, will you please do some soul-repairing work upon each person here, myself included, and we will give you praise. Amen.